You're now listening to episode 75 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Castelli here today with Matt Rappaport, attorney at law specializing in taxation as it relates to real estate corporations, partnerships, and trusts and estates. In this episode, we're going to discuss a 1031 exchange strategy known as a drop and swap, which allows partners to drop their interest from real property out of a partnership into their hands so each partner can do a 1031 exchange into their own property or let some partners simply cash out. We will also discuss how to drop and swap into a syndicated real estate interest and what to look out for while doing so and so much more. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, I wanna let you know that we'll be hosting the first ever tax and legal virtual summit specifically for real estate investors coming up Saturday, February 29th and Sunday, March 1st. At this event, you'll learn about lucrative tax and asset protection strategies from the top legal and tax experts in the industry. Topics include the real estate professional status, cost segregation studies, 1031 exchanges, self-directed retirement accounts, entity structuring, estate planning, and so much more. Don't miss this incredible event designed to save you thousands in taxes and help protect the assets and wealth you work so hard to build. Head over to www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. Again, that's www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. See you there. But for now, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Matt, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little bit of information on your background and how you work with real estate investors? Oh, sure. Um, as far as my background, I'm vice managing partner of Falcon Rappaport and Berkman PLLC. We officially reached a year right around Labor Day that we were in existence. Before that, I had a solo practice dealing exclusively in tax planning, structuring, and compliance, mainly for domestic transactions in real estate, M&A, and trust and estates. But now I was able to combine forces with professionals in allied fields such that we can provide basically a full range of services to real estate professionals on the legal side. And what that means is that not only means the transactional real estate services of all types, but also the supplemental tax planning services. And then on top of that, any corporate services that are incidental to real estate, from simple entity formation and governing agreements all the way down to syndications and any securities offerings that are not governed by SEC regulation, but rather by state blue sky laws, Reg D, that sort of thing. So we've become a shop that is really, really helpful for private equity professionals. My practice, of course, focuses on how those private equity professionals can be best positioned from a tax point of view. But we also take care of the governing agreements, the syndications, the PPMs, the reviewing the pitch decks, pretty much a full slate of services that any private equity firm that's engaged in real estate could ask for all the way up until the massive, massive public offerings. Uh, One day, I guess we can hope to do the $500 million uh, opportunity funds. But as of now, I think we have a bit of a logical limit, you know? I hear that. It sounds like you guys got a lot of different things going on. 
And I know one of the, one of the strategies that you have focused on, or I've, I've heard you on different podcasts on is talking about 1031 exchanges and the drop and swap strategy. Before we get into the drop and swap, would you be able to give our listeners just a brief refresher on what a 1031 exchange is? Yeah, sure. So a section 1031 exchange is a tax benefit that is written into the internal revenue code that as of the end of 2017 in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act only applies to real estate now. But a 1031 exchange is designed to allow investors to roll over the proceeds of sale of any given parcel of real estate held either for investment or for productive use in a trade or business into replacement real estate that also meets the same use criteria. And those proceeds can be rolled over without tax. So to boil this down into a nutshell, if I sell parcel A of real estate and I roll those proceeds in a qualified 1031 exchange to parcel B, I can invest in parcel B pre-tax. So what happens is any gain that would have been recognized on the uh, cash from the sale of parcel A doesn't get taxed the gain is preserved inside of parcel B so that if parcel B is liquidated and there is no 1031 exchange, then you would pay the deferred taxes at that time. But the advantage is that as long as I'm out there shopping for parcel B, I get to invest in parcel B with no tax friction, which is especially powerful in my home jurisdiction of New York because that'll come without state taxes, federal taxes, and local taxes, which is nice. Awesome. Awesome. So of course, you know, there's a lot of good benefits of using a 1031 exchange, but there's always a number of strategies and ways you can apply the 1031 exchange. And one of them is uh, a technique called or a strategy called the drop and swap. I know it's an area that you specialize in. Would you be able to give a little bit of an explanation of what a drop and swap is? Sure. So I do about 20 of these a year as tax counsel. And what a drop and swap is, is accommodating a real estate investment with multiple investors to allow exit strategies in more than one form so that each investor can do what he or she wants to do upon exit. So let me give you a simple example. If you and I are in a real estate investment through a two-member LLC, and that two-member LLC owns real estate, here's the thing about the way 1031 works. In order for us to get the tax benefits We have to own real estate directly. We can't own it through an LLC. If the LLC owns it, then if we're going to go ahead and do a 1031 exchange upon selling inside of the LLC, then the LLC has to do the exchange. And if the two of us are going to stick together, then we need to agree on what the LLC is going to do. Whether people are fighting or whether people simply have different ideas about how they want to spend their proceeds, it just doesn't make sense a lot of the time for people to be forced to stick together. So what they'll do instead is they'll come to an agreement that with um, one person's portion of the proceeds, he or she's going to go ahead and either take cash and pay taxes or do a 1031 exchange. And then the other investor might do a separate 1031 exchange, totally independent of investor number one. So in that scenario, what you need to do for tax purposes is you need to prep the property for separate exits by getting rid of the LLC that owns the property and then taking back the ownership of the property as tenants in common. And that's the essence of the drop and swap. It's really making sure that the ownership is lined up such that upon closing of your sale, investors one, two, three, and four, if they're all owners in the property, can each do different exits as they please with the sale proceeds. And as I'm sure we're going to get into in a little bit, it's a little bit more delicate a lot of the times than people give it credit for. But in a nutshell, that's what the drop and swap is all about. 
Can you explain that delicacy piece? Yeah. So as far as um, what you have to do in order to make a conversion from, you know, either LLC ownership or limited partnership ownership or whatever into tenants in common, you can't just simply change the deed and that's it. And that's all. What you have to do is you have to put together a compliant conversion in order for the tax authorities to respect that conversion. And that involves depending on the timing and the nature and and the other characteristics of the property itself and its ownership, it's going to require taking several steps, everything from drawing up a a tax compliant uh, tenant and common agreement to putting the right language into the resolutions to liquidate the entity down to changing um, the insurance policies, the lease, assigning the leases, and typically most sensitive is interfacing with the lender to change the borrower for any existing debt on the property from the entity to its tenants in common, which is typically a laborious process because, um, you know, we all know how much lenders love changing things up. (laughs) So, you know, interfacing with lenders about this can be tough. And most of the time, whenever there is debt on the property, that is the trickiest part of these things. But if any of these elements is not met, you know, one of these things I like to call a footfault, then it is possible that the tax authorities, if they're aggressive enough, can seek to invalidate the entire exchange and force everybody to pay taxes after the fact, which is no fun for anyone. So, you know, my job as tax counsel is to step in on these exchanges and to assist people as best I possibly can with maintaining tax compliance while also getting their deal done and not screwing up any other aspect of their property ownership. So those technicalities are part of how delicate it is. The other delicate part, especially in the private equity world, is preserving the economics of deals such that typically speaking, when you are in a limited partnership that's being syndicated and the limited partners are in there and they're part of a waterfall, both the limited partners and the sponsor might be upset at the idea that under the tax rules, a tenancy in common can't have a waterfall. So now all of a sudden you got to start solving the economic issues that go into the idea that if you want to have a waterfall, a tenancy in common can't have one. And that, of course, feeds into timing as well. And the notion that the closer your conversion is to closing of the property, the less safe it is from a tax point of view. And typically speaking, especially in the private equity world, you want to drop and swap to occur as close to closing as you possibly can, because not only of the economics, but also because of what the lender's telling you and what the LPs are telling you and how much time it takes to get signatures from everybody and so on and so forth down the line. But the longer you wait, the less safe it is. The whole thing moves on a sliding scale that usually begins before you ever sign an agreement with a broker to market the property. So the safest thing you could do is you could, you could do the drop before you even ever put the property on the market. Then, you know, the next, uh, safety level down is usually the idea that you've signed a listing agreement, but the property is not yet up for sale. Then one level down from that is the property is for sale, but you don't yet have a prospective buyer. Negotiating with a prospective buyer is one level down from that. And then finally, when you are in contract and prior to closing, that's usually the last level of safety. Although I will tell you in my own uh, personal opinion, not granted, nothing I say in this podcast is legal or tax advice. And what kind of lawyer would I be if I didn't have a disclaimer, right? But generally, you know, my view is that as long as you are doing it correctly, 
you can drop at any time and you can still maintain the tax integrity of the transaction. Now, as far as the intensity of the fight that you'll have with the tax authorities, that's a different story. But that is my personal view, and it, it separates me a little bit from my colleagues on the tax bar. A lot of good stuff there. Uh, before we move on to the tick piece, which we will talk about in a second here, I've got a couple more questions on the drop and swap. So you mentioned that working with lenders is the most laborious part of this entire thing or, or one of those top issues. How do you work with lenders, and what, what are some of their, like I guess, common things that they push back on, and how do you kind of overcome those hurdles? Sure. So you can't go, you can't bat a thousand when it comes to the lenders because everybody knows that lenders oftentimes just irrationally don't allow you to do the things that you want to do. So sometimes we strike out with the lenders, just a fact of life. And anybody who tells you that they're batting a thousand with lenders is lying to you. But generally speaking, the way that we interface with the lenders is, is we're, we ask for the legal department right away. I mean, typically speaking, what we'll do is we'll get connected with a loan officer or we'll get connected with somebody in underwriting. Unless we're talking to a lawyer, um, those discussions tend to be a waste of time. We typically try to get the legal department on the phone as soon as possible in order to run down for them what we're doing, why we're doing it, and most important, we also want to let them know that especially if there are personal guarantees on the property, there's really not any fear of losing the quality of their legal position based on the idea that the guarantors are all the same, the security is all the same, they're generally in the same position as they otherwise would have been. So we try to make the lenders see the light that making this move to accommodate the borrower is not going to put them in any worse of a position. Furthermore, if the borrower is somebody who's you know doing serial deals, such as a private equity sponsor, we really try to leverage either a past relationship or the prospect of future relationships with that borrower, where with the borrower's permission, we'll turn around to the uh, lender and we'll say, look, generally speaking, if you go ahead and you cooperate on this deal, the next time that the borrower is going to seek to do a syndicated multifamily deal or whatever they're getting into, then they're going to have extra incentive to stick with you if they understand that they can accomplish their investment and their tax goals if you give them what they're looking for. And, you know, if, if there's a longstanding relationship, you're typically able to go to the higher ups and say, look, you know, we've been able to successfully do some deals with you many, many times. We plan on doing so many, many times in the future. You understand that the borrower has integrity. You understand that you're not going to get screwed. And it's, it's in everybody's best interest if you go ahead and you just play along with us. There are times when lenders will ask us to make additional accommodations legally on their behalf in order to accede to the request. And sometimes that stuff's appropriate. I mean, what we'll do is we'll say, okay, if you want to go ahead and you want to execute any sort of side letter you want to put together, or if you want to have people pledge additional security, perhaps if you want to, you know, we'll run that by the borrower and we'll say, look, you know, this is what the lender is asking for. Do you think that this is worthwhile for you to get the outcome that you're looking for? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. We try to get as creative as possible to look for avenues to get the lenders to, like I said, see the light and understand that this is in everybody's best interest and they should grant the request to change ownership of the property. But I will tell you, sometimes you take every shot, you fire every bullet you've got, and sometimes the lender still says no. And in that case, the deal is usually dead. It is extremely difficult to try and justify from a safety point of view um, a drop and swap if the lender is not willing to give permission and honor the integrity of the transaction. It's a major risk, 
And at that point, the client is basically playing auto roulette if that's the way they want to go. Now, some clients want to do that, but certainly what we do is, as counsels, we give them all sorts of correspondence and say, listen, this is not the way we think it should be done. You're in really uncharted territory here. You may get tax penalties incurred in the event that somebody examines this. And we'll nevertheless accommodate the client if the client has knowledge of the risk and wants to move forward. But as far as the lender, the lender is a key piece of this thing. And we try, we really try to move heaven and earth in order to get the lender to, to recognize and acknowledge what we're doing, because if they don't, the tax problems are pretty severe. Got it. Thank you very much for that. So under what circumstance does it make sense to run a drop and swap? And when does it not make sense? You kind of talked about, you know, if we've got a group of people and they all kind of want to go separate ways, obviously that is an opportunity to potentially look at these deals. Are there any other times where it makes sense to explore drop and swap? As far as the drop and swap, the big thing is that you're accommodating differing investment objectives upon the exit strategy with multiple owners. Now, there is one context in which drop and swap simply doesn't make sense because it's not possible from a tax point of view, and that's when you own through a, a corporation. So if you have a corporation that owns real estate, and you find this in New York and other places when it comes to very, very old properties, where people have owned stuff for 30 years, 40 years, or even longer through generations, and what you find is they've got multiple shareholders, perhaps based on family succession, one of the things that comes into play with that is the whole idea that if you have one person or maybe a husband and a wife who have owned property for a long time and then they both have died and they bequeath that property to multiple siblings, we often find this problem whereby they want to sell the property and then there's certain people want to do a 1031 and certain people don't. Well, the problem in a corporation is that if you try to liquidate a corporation the same way that you would liquidate an LLC or a partnership, the problem you run into is that the liquidation is a taxable event and it defeats the entire purpose of a drop and swap. So when do you not do it? You don't do it when you have an S-corp. Instead, you have to do much fancier structuring when you have an S-corp, which our firm has done before and certainly will do again. But the drop and swap is not the strategy that you use for that. You get much more complicated and expensive. The, the other time in which a drop and swap wouldn't be done would be in the event that the value of the property is simply not high enough to justify the legal and the other fees that would go into it. Um, and, you know, an example would be if you have a micro deal whereby two people own property that's worth, say, you know, $600,000. I mean, that's, you know, you, you start getting into territory there where, you know, the, the grand total of maybe, you know, uh, 20, 25, perhaps 30 grand in additional legal fees for potentially each person involved is not going to be a worthwhile cost to them when it comes to the tax savings. So, you know, if you got each person who's entitled to 300 grand, the taxes in a, in a jurisdiction where you only have federal taxes to worry about, it's probably going to be somewhere in the order of about, you know, uh, 80 to 90 grand. But at the same time, between all the legal work that has to be done, all the extra accounting work that has to be done, the proper um, formalities that have to be followed, the headache and the costs all of a sudden might not be worth it. So the two instances in which you're certainly not going to do it are with real estate held in corporations and when the deal is a little bit too small to accommodate all the expenses that might come with it. But if you have especially an LLC or a partnership that's got multiple owners and they all have differing objectives on exit, drop and swaps start to make sense. And from here, you know, I think it might make sense to segue into when you have a, a private equity investment of considerable size 
meaning that there's usually eight or nine uh, limited partners or greater, you have to start exploring some potential alternative strategies because converting everything to tenants in common is not going to make much sense in those instances. Before we jump into that, you mentioned that the costs can range 25 to 30K per person in a drop and swap. Where, where are those fees coming from? Is it primarily legal? You mentioned some accounting, tax advisory. Is there a typical breakdown that, that clients could expect to see? Sure. I mean, so as far as in the private equity uh, context, the sponsor bears most of the costs, if not all of them. Um, but in a multi-investor scenario, typically speaking, what you're looking at is you're looking at each person um, having somebody represent his or her own interests. That would include transactional counsel, such that you know if, if, if you and I are two out of the six members in an LLC where everybody pulled their money together and it wasn't really syndicated, so there's no sponsor... What you're looking at there is you're looking at, in an ideal scenario, everybody's got somebody representing their own interests such that there are no conflicts in terms of attorney representation and everybody's comfortable with the notion that they're not getting screwed. So you have everybody really that has their own counsel going ahead and, and putting their heads in and looking at stuff. Furthermore, there's also the idea that everybody needs to go ahead and circulate the relevant legal documents and such in order to review and mark them up and, and that sort of business which in, in the typical scenario is a fair bit of activity. And then, of course, there's the notion that, you know, usually everybody shares tax counsel in these scenarios, but only the people who are exchanging are the ones who are going to bear that expense. So if you're cashing out, I mean, usually you've just got your transactional attorney sitting there and making sure that you're not getting screwed out of anything. But you have tax counsel that's going ahead and orchestrating the whole transaction. Tax counsel is going to be somewhere in the five figures alone, just based on the idea of, review of all the relevant documents, uh, interfacing with everybody's accountants, doing certain drafting that we, as when we participate as tax counsel, we insist on doing certain drafting. Corporate resolutions, tenancy and common agreements, modifications to loans, that sort of thing. That stuff usually flows through us. Then you've got the idea as to whether or not there might be other fees, including what the lender may force you to pay in order to make a modification to the borrower identity on the loan. So if you're going ahead and you're converting from, from LLC to tenants in common in terms of who the borrower is, the lender may make you pay fees. The lender may make you reimburse their expenses. We've seen that before. The lender may go ahead and institute a fee of a half percent or 1% of the outstanding balance just because they can. Lenders have different approaches to this stuff, and you have to take into account that there's also the idea the lender may assess fees on you. So believe it or not, you know, as you start moving up the ladder and the deals get larger and more complicated, the fees on this, on this thing start going up and up and up and up, and then you, all of a sudden you have to start doing a cost-benefit analysis as to whether or not the entire process is even worthwhile. But you have to be prepared for something substantial if you want this to be done right. Gotcha, gotcha. So it's uh, to, to sum it up, it's a, it's a very delicate. Uh, you know, there's a lot of in- intricacies that that go into it, and it can become quite costly. So you probably would want to uh, make sure you're looking at everything thoroughly rather before diving into it. Uh, just had some questions on a tick structure. Sometimes what we see is uh, someone might drop and swap into a tick that's with a let's say with a syndicator. So the syndicator will have their LP arm, and they'll have uh, part of the property owned by the tick. And I know that at some point you you had mentioned perhaps on another podcast that that tick interest could actually be rolled up into the limited partnership interest at some point. Is that accurate? 
Sure. So what you're talking about is you're talking about the opposite end of the transaction. What we've been discussing up to this point is we're talking about the sales side of the 1031. You're talking about the buy side. If we're on the buy side now and you're a sponsor and you're going ahead, you're trying to get 1031 capital into the transaction, you need to flip everything on its head. Tick first, LLC or LP later. So the way that's going to work is you're going to have your 1031 investors, you're going to have your non-1031 investors. Your non-1031 investors are going to come to an LP entity as normal. However, what you're then going to do is you're going to have everybody who's a 1031 investor come into ownership of tenancy and common interest in the same property. You're going to have a tick agreement between the LP and your 1031 investors. Each of them will be a separate tick. And then you'll go ahead, you'll hold that tick agreement for as long as you can tolerate. And then typically speaking, what you do is you go to your lender and you say, listen, we're going to start this off as ticks, but the lender can typically specify within, say, six months or one year, uh, you will roll everything up into the LP entity. The way the roll-up typically works is that everybody who is a tenant in common is going to go ahead and make a contribution of their interests to the LP, uniting the ownership of the property entirely under the LP, and the tick owners will take back a limited partnership interest on the same economic terms as all the other limited partners, the non-1031 investors, and then the investment will continue as normal. You know, in the interim period, the way you typically do management, excuse me, you'll do management by installing the sponsor as a non-member manager of a single-member LLC that is owning the tick interest and the member of the LLC is the is the 31 investor. So if you have, you know, Jane Smith is coming in alongside the LP, Jane Smith is going to form Jane Smith LLC. Jane Smith LLC is going to own her tick interest and the non-member manager of Jane Smith LLC is going to be the sponsor. The only thing you need to make sure of is that Jane Smith has free reign to remove and replace the manager unless the lender specifies otherwise, which the lender typically does. But one way or another, you know, typically the, the management is the biggest concern and that's the way you typically address the management. And you have to really conform to the whims of the lender in order to get the deal done. I mean, in an ideal scenario, you're going to plan this stuff for, for 100% tax safety. But in reality, the way this stuff typically works is you have to make accommodations. And a lot of what I do for a living is making judgment calls about what is acceptable from a business point of view for people to take tax risk in order to make sure that their deal is going to close. And that's, uh, you know, that's a bit of a high wire act sometimes. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, thankfully, that's the reason why I remain useful. Otherwise, I'd have this whole big pile of student loans and no way to pay it. <laughs> oh, I love that. All right. So, so you, you said that the sponsor could take a stake as a non-member manager of the LLC, right? So if I'm, a, if I'm an LP in the deal and let's say Tom is the sponsor, I can create Hall Capital LLC. I go into the tick with Hall Capital LLC and then I name Tom my non-member manager. What if Tom took a stake in my LLC, a profit stake? Sure. If Tom, t if Tom takes a profit stake in your LLC, that's problematic for your 1031. And the reason why is because the profit stake renders the LLC a partnership. Your problem is that if you buy inside of a partnership, then you've blown your 1031 because you've bought a partnership interest, not a real estate interest. So it's, it's crucial that the LLC remain a single member LLC. The way you might address the economics is that when you take back the LP interest, you know, you may address the economics through the um, issuance of the LP interest. But generally speaking, once you go ahead and you make that roll up, the economics for a limited partner are the same as they are for any other partner. 
And the sponsor captures most, if not all, of the fees that need to be assessed. But generally speaking, if the sponsor is going to miss out on six months' worth of fees, give or take, it's really not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. Let me also say as well that um, there's certain fees a sponsor can take right at closing on a 1031 transaction that are not going to blow up the 1031, and those are pretty much any fees that are determined by reference to gross investment and not determined by reference to net profits. So let me give you an example. If you go ahead and you take an acquisition fee or you take a load fee, you know those are typically okay because they're determined by reference to gross investment. So as a matter of fact, if you decide on the closing statement that you want to go ahead and you want to assess the 1031 investor an acquisition fee, that is okay because it's determined by reference to gross. So you do have the opportunity to go ahead and build in those economics. The only thing I usually caution clients is that the fees assessed at closing should be the same as the fees assessed to the other LPs, mm-hmm. not only for, for tax reasons to maintain the tax integrity of the transaction, but also based on the idea that the 1031 investor doesn't feel like they're getting screwed. But long story short, I mean, you can preserve a lot of the economics that you want, and to the extent you have to give up anything, it's usually worthwhile based on the notion that you're opening up your private equity investment to 1031 capital, which could potentially funnel millions more dollars of equity into a transaction and make or break closing. So, you know, are there some trade-offs involved? There are. Um, you can't get economics straight from closing based on building in a profits member into an LLC right away. Um, there are some fancy ways that you can try and thread the needle that I won't really go into here. But by and large, you've got to keep things pretty plain until that roll-up occurs, at which point all the regular economics of a syndicated investment can apply from that point forward. Got it. And what are some ways to calculate like the ongoing sponsor asset management fee? If we can't do it based on net income or property performance, is there anything creative that we can do to calculate that, uh, that asset management fee for the sponsor? Uh, well, as far as asset management fees are concerned, you can do it based on the gross income, not the net income, not income after expenses. But typically speaking, if you go ahead and you, you assess at the LLC level, you say, uh, listen, as long as you're a single member LLC and a tenant in common, you could do two things. You could assess a fee as manager of the LLC that's reasonable, or you could set up to have the LP and all of the other ticks pay a gross asset management fee out of, out of rent, you know, which is always typical, right? On a residential property, you're usually paying somewhere in the neighborhood in syndicated investment, at least in my experience, 4 to 7% of gross rent roll out to the affiliated management company. That's totally okay. Um, you can do that as ticks. There's no problem with it because it's not determined by reference to net proceeds, determined by reference to gross rent roll. So all of that is okay. So you can build that in and get a little bit creative with it. But I, I've seen people really toe the line, which is not what I normally recommend to people. I mean, again, if clients want to toe the line on any aspect of tax planning, as long as they understand and acknowledge receipt of a, a written correspondence telling them what they're getting into, we'll, we'll do anything. Um, as long as it's not unethical or illegal. But but long story short, I mean, you know, we don't normally recommend that. We don't normally uh, ask people to get too cutesy with the way that the fees are going to work out because this is a six to 12 month arrangement. So it's not really going to kill your overall economics if you have a three to five year time horizon, as is normal for a syndicated investment. So, you know, generally we try to tell people, look, you know, we can build things in there to help you out and make sure that you'll get about the same amount of fees as you otherwise would during the duration of the investment. But don't get too, too cute. And just remember why you're doing this. You're doing this to open up other streams of incoming capital. And I don't know when the market reversal is going to occur, but when it does occur, you know, accept, finding ways to accept that additional capital is going to become more and more important. 
Got it. Got it. Thank you so much for clearing that up. You know, we've uh, gotten somewhat some mixed opinions on that. But at the end of the day, I think uh, with what you said is about accurate uh, for the most part in terms of, you know, the way we viewed it. So just kind of jumping into some other questions we do ask all our guests. Um, what is the fair piece of technology that you're using in your business or, or software that you're perhaps using? Yeah. Wow. Even in the legal field. Yeah. There's gotta be some, some kind of exciting tech, right? I mean, I guess, um, I mean, man, oh man. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I try to make myself as tech savvy as possible, but I, I, I will tell you, um, I'm not an early adopter of anything probably as far as legal tech, I'm trying to think of something that's not too small. I mean, I have several small, small things that we've implemented around the office, but I don't know how notable they are. I mean, one of the, one piece of legal tech that I think is relatively cool is, um, I downloaded the app. I have a Google Pixel 2 XL. So I downloaded the app Otter Voice Notes onto my phone, which is an app that will use voice recognition technology to take down dictated notes. Because I'll tell you, I mean, even though I use Evernote pretty liberally for all sorts of things in my professional and personal life that I want to keep track of through notes, the cool thing about the voice notes is if I'm on the run, which I am all the time, I'm hopping from meeting to meeting, phone call to phone call, and I just don't have time to type out a detailed recap of the meeting. It's going to take me two minutes for me to turn on the, uh, the app. I'll press the button, dictate voice notes into the phone. And then what the app is going to do is going to take down through dictation, all of the notes that I am speaking into the phone such that I can give a pretty full recap of the meeting and all of my action items over a two to three minute period, such that I can just like basically get on my way almost immediately right after a meeting, because typically the way my schedule works is the next meeting is waiting for me right after it. So the thing that I've implemented, and I guess it is kind of small, but this whole uh, Otter Voice Notes business is pretty cool for anybody who's on the run like me, who needs to make sure that they can take thorough notes in a short period of time, because typing stuff out of your thumbs in that scenario is just not going to do it. What was the name of that at one more time? Otter Voice Notes, like the animal, O-T-T-E-R. Got it. Nice, nice. So if our listeners wanted to get in contact with you or your business, uh, what would be the best way for them to do so? Email by a long shot. Uh, the switchboard rings off the hook with the phone in the office. So if you're not a paying client, it's very difficult. Or if you're not a paying client or a prospect of clients, it's very difficult for me to get back to you timely. Um, reach me by email. It's my initials, M-E-R at F-R-B-Law.com. So that's uh, my initials, M-E-R, Matthew Evan Rappaport at F like Frank, R like Robert, B like Brian, and the word law.com. And that is by a long shot the best way to reach me. Awesome. Awesome. I want to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show today. It's definitely been uh, very informative and look forward to releasing it. I enjoyed the conversation. If you guys want to have me back, I'm open to it anytime. Hey, everybody. Uh, Brennan Hall and Thomas Costello here for the debrief segment of today's podcast on drop and swaps and tick interest with Matt Rappaport. It was an exciting episode. I uh, heard about the drop and swap technique, which is, you know, in summary, where you will have an entity, say it's you and a partner, and you want to each do your own 1031 exchanges or one of you wants to do 1031 exchange and the other doesn't. You will essentially drop that interest from the partnership into your own personal names and then go your separate ways and do what you will. You could both 1031 into a different project or one of you could 1031, the other one could go and just pay the capital gains tax. But as Matt did say, there is a bunch of intricacies uh, that are involved with that and it is quite complicated. There's a lot of delicacies to it. And so before you do it, there needs to be, a, first of all, a large enough capital gain for it to make sense. 
uh, so that the legal fees don't eat up all of the savings that you'll gain from doing the 1031 exchange in the first place. And then we talked about tick interests, which is pretty exciting. I know we had a uh, pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tick interest was definitely interesting. And, and just on the drop and swap book, real quick, the thing that I found interesting is that often the lenders, it sounds like, is going to be that stopping point. So you really have to get around the lender hurdle, making sure that your lender understands what's going on and, and is accepting the, uh, I guess, theoretical risk, even though Matt was kind of saying there is no real additional risk if you structure it the right way. But talking to the lender and getting them through that process and onto the side that you want them to be on so that you can complete that deal tends to be a, uh, a tough part of that process. So I found that interesting. Now on the tick side, that was cool too. So so, you know, like, like if you are investing in a partnership group, you know, you, you can only exchange real estate for real estate. So you have to be, what, what our clients often run into is they will liquidate a piece of real estate and want to invest in a syndication. And they want to do that via a 1031 exchange, but they can't go and invest into a partnership because that invalidates the 1031 exchange rules. You're not, you know, if I'm investing in a partnership, I'm owning paper or I'm not the same taxpayer. So we've got multiple issues that we have to kind of uh, approach there. But what we have heard of in the past is, you know, so the problem with the tick structure is that there's a lot of stipulations and rules. You can't go and compensate the sponsor based on the property's net performance, right? So if the property produces a significant IRR, unlike a typical syndication structure, I can't go and have a nice waterfall. I, I can't give or promote interest or anything like that. So that creates issues when, when we're structuring these ticks. So you have to come in as a single member LLC um, and you have to take your tick interest as a single member LLC. And what Matt was saying is you could have a non-member manager manage your single member LLC interest and that's fine. But we've seen examples and cases in the past where people try to make the sponsor Instead of being a non-member manager, they try to make the sponsor an actual capital or profits interest in the LLC that they're setting up. But now they're creating a partnership. They're invalidating the 1031 exchange rules. And they're also running afoul of the rules related to this type of tick structure as well. Yeah, that was, uh, it was awesome to get some clarity around that. Um, we do have a question jumping right into the Q&A segment for today. We did receive an email from Christian. And to summarize, essentially, the question that comes in the email is, there's a lot of W-2 uh, people out there who have W-2 jobs who work full-time. And because of that, they're not going to be able to count their hours that they work in that job towards the real estate professional stats because they don't own 5% of the employer. So Christian was asking if we could just speak to that and if there are any ways around that. Yeah. So what you're running across here is it's not necessarily real estate professional hours, right? So real estate professional hours, 750 hours, greater than half my time. What we're running across is the material participation aspect of it. So in order to count any hours towards material participation, you do have to own uh, 5% of your employer if you're the employee there. So if you don't own 5% of your employer, then, you know, if like you're a broker or, well, I guess maybe not, a, if you're a W-2 broker or if you're working as a property manager, but you're on a W-2 and you don't own 5% of the employer, that's where you're going to run into issues qualifying for that material participation piece. You do have to own that 5%. This is pretty well documented. There's a couple court cases out there. There's one where the gentleman was a real estate appraiser. I think he was like the director of uh, of appraisal services and he was doing pretty much just doing real estate full-time tried to qualify himself as a real estate professional and qualify for the material participation they struck the material participation because he didn't have five percent uh, ownership in the overall company and that was tc summary opinion 
uh, 2015-64. Kirsten, I hope that uh, helps. I hope that answers your question. Remember, if you want to have your question answered here on the Real Estate CPA Podcast, head over to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcasts. Drop your question in the box and we may just answer it here on the podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.